Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Today we have the privilege of hearing a sermon by a wonderful young scholar, who is also able to preach, as we can see in this sermon, Dr. Uh-huh. Stefana Dan Lang. Now, let, let me tell you a little bit about Stefana. Uh, she uh, holds the Master of Divinity degree and the Ph.D. in patristics from Southern Seminary in Louisville. She and her husband, Dr. John Lang, are both on faculty and staff of the Houston campus of Southwestern Seminary. Uh, where she works in the library and also teaches in other institutions. In fact, she's taught here at Beeson Divinity School on two separate Mm -hmm. occasions. Mm -hmm. Wonderful teacher, communicator, and we're going to listen now to a sermon she preached here at Beeson during our Living with a Psalm series on Psalm 139. Tell us about it, Dr. Smith. Very uh, interesting, Dean George, in that... She preaches a sermon during our series, Living with the Psalms, and she states, the psalm, this psalm, Psalm 139, has been living with me mm. because she's pregnant at this time and has been experiencing the psalm, uh, being fearfully and wonderfully made, that her um, body being the uh, workshop of nature and so on and so on. The integrating metaphor that is sustained throughout this entire sermon is this surveillance uh, camera uh, that zooms in and she's dealing with the omnipresence of God and God's surveillance system uh, that God is seeing all and God is uh, orchestrating everything in life. So really she's dealing with sovereignty uh, and she's dealing uh, with God's uh, omniscience and omnipresence. I found it very helpful to follow her throughout the sermon and that she treats all four strophes, all four walks through them, uh, very eclectic since she's, she is, um, uh, her expertise is in the area of patristics. Uh, she uses the church fathers. Uh, she walks through the four strophes, the third strophe being the sanctity of life text in which uh, she is experiencing in her own body. She does not avoid the tough questions. How does God hate with perfect hatred and yet love? And so she goes on to say, God hates that thing in us that is wicked and yet loves the fact that we are human. Mm. And she brings that out in terms of the church fathers who will say uh, that God loves the sinner but hates sin. I appreciated that. I appreciated that this was a text that had caught up with her mm-hmm. and that she was not only experiencing motherhood in preparation, but that she was experiencing, experiencing it simultaneously with the text. She closes the sermon with just one application, and it is at the end. And it's a question. What is our response concerning God's surveillance toward us? And she and she responds by saying, we are prone to hide. That's it. So she is trusting that the application will be implicit and evoked uh, as she preaches rather than to give direct applications and lessons that we ought to learn. We learn them without her telling us we should. Yeah. And this is a very appropriate sermon, I think, for this season of the year when we remember the sanctity of life. 
and all of the importance yes. of that in, in our moment in history. Yes. And here's an example of a young scholar who loves Jesus Christ, who is a mother as well as a scholar yes. and teacher, and uh, who's taking us to the heart of this great text, Psalm 139. So let's listen to our special friend, Dr. Stefana Dan Lang, as she preaches on Psalm 139. Good morning to you all. Thank you to the vocal group. That was an absolutely sublime rendition of the psalm. And the psalms are meant to be sung. So thank you very much for that. Before I begin, let me express my appreciation to a few people. First, to Dean George for extending to me an invitation not only to teach here this semester, but also to preach on a psalm text, which is so appropriate for me. I'm both a new mom, as well as you no doubt can observe through this transparent podium, an expecting mom. Many of our speakers this semester have mentioned their attempts to live out their assigned psalm, and indeed our communal theme is living with the psalms. I also have been living with this psalm, but in my case, the psalm has also been living itself out in me. With respect to my situation, I would like also to express my deep gratitude to my parents-in-law, Edwin and Elizabeth Lang from Michigan, who have been ever-present with me this past month, caring for Sydney so that I have the joy of seeing my daughter on a daily basis. Proceeding geographically south from Michigan to Birmingham to Houston, I also want to thank my own parents, Titus and Folga Dan, who are ever-present to Sydney in my absence from home. And finally, also in Houston, I would like to speak a word of appreciation to my doctor, Peggy Taylor, who has a burgeoning OBGYN practice there and whose prominent display of this psalm text at her office bears witness to her unashamed pro-life stance in a pro-death medical culture. It is an often repeated fact of late that Londoners are the most photographed people on the earth. I'm not referring to Elizabeth Hurley or Sir Elton John. I'm referring to video surveillance cameras and a hefty system of closed-circuit televisions. According to an interview conducted on NPR a few months ago, there are 6,000 security cameras in the London transport system alone, and over half a million surveillance cameras just in that city. By contrast with the United States, whose citizens are prone to complain of invasion of privacy, Britain seemed to welcome the plethora of cameras, even in residential areas. As we turn to our text of the morning, Psalm 139, which we have both read and heard and heard sung, we gain some sense of God's surveillance system. We bring to the text our usual interpretive questions, those of setting and dating, genre, tone, author, context, history of interpretation, etc., you prospective students need to just get used to that right now. That's what's waiting for you. Its setting and context are ultimately undetermined, but later verses may indicate a context which we'll mention at the appropriate place. This psalm is a mix of genres containing lamentation, petition, a hymnic meditation, praising the Creator for His wondrous works, meditating upon His divine knowledge and His ways and His thoughts. It also contains wisdom motifs. 
namely the focus on divine knowledge and perception, divine presence, and, as we'll see at the end, the ethic of the two ways, as we find in Psalm 1. It also bears some strong affinities to the book of Job, especially in its talk about light and dark. Structurally, the psalm may be divided into roughly four strophes or stanzas, which demonstrate structural integrity by repetition of their theme and thematic progression. So verses 1 to 6 concern divine knowledge. Verses 7 to 12 or 7 to 14 speak of God's presence. Verses 13 or 14 to 18 deal with God's creative activity. Verses 19 to 24 constitute an imprecatory plea for the destruction of the wicked and a prayer for vindication by virtue of God's exhaustive and intimate knowledge of all things. Verses 1 and 23 form an inclusio, a kind of parenthesis, whereby God is invited to examine and to know the psalmist's thoughts and intentions. What is the tone of this piece? Is it a plea for vindication? Is it an expression of wariness at God's knowledge, the great surveillance camera in the sky? Or is it an exaltation of God's thorough perception of the psalmist? Does he welcome God's scrutiny? Or does he resign himself to being denied his rights to privacy? Authorship of the psalm is traditionally ascribed to David, but not all agree. It's interesting and instructive to look back at the church fathers, and I'm not biased or anything, but almost every one of them composed a commentary or some kind of work on the Psalms. Of course, at times one may be surprised at what one encounters around the next hermeneutical corner in the church fathers, but that's what makes it so interesting. Two diverse examples will suffice here. In the 5th century, Theodoret of Cyrus, an Eastern church father, wrote, according to the Antiochian tradition, that this psalm was spoken by David prophetically about the king Josiah, who would purge Judah of idolatry. The Western father Augustine, also 5th century, interpreted some parts as spoken by Christ and referring variously to his incarnation, passion, and resurrection, And he applied the final strophe not to idolaters, but to schismatics, the Donatists, who were dividing the church in his own day. The use of God's covenant name, Yahweh, and the use of Yada, to know intimately and in a covenantal fashion, marks the author, if not David, at least as a covenant devotee, a pious worshiper of God. The repeated use of yada, which is used five times in this psalm, in fact led my husband to suggest to me that I entitle my sermon, Yada, Yada, Yada. (laughs) Somebody like Calvin Miller could pull off some kind of a daring feat like that, but I'm not brave enough. (laughs) Nonetheless, the repeated use of yada in the psalm is significant. After the psalmist addresses the Lord and invites his examination, there follows a beautiful textual and theological interplay. Textually, there is a back-and-forth interplay of merisms, of juxtapositions of polar opposites, the point of which is to extol the all-encompassing knowledge, which is interchangeable with sight, and the presence of God. 
The opposites that we see mentioned in verses 1 through 6 are sitting, standing, departure, arrival, the things that God knows, speech and silence, which are implied. God is behind and before and upon, hemming in the psalmist, besieging him. Some commentators interpret these two terms, behind and before, as metaphorical references to the cardinal points of west and east. All these examples serve as indicators of God's knowledge, which is overpowering for the psalmist. Such knowledge, he says, is too wonderful for me, too lofty, too high. I cannot reach it. I cannot attain it. As the first strophe dwells upon God's knowledge, the second strophe dwells upon God's presence of such a nature that his sight, his surveillance, catches all. All about us, that is. By the psalmist's words, escape and flee. He gives the impression that God is pursuing. Like at some time, uh, God, God was spoken of uh, in this psalm as the hound of heaven. He's pursuing you. He's after you. I don't think that's a necessary interpretation. It is impossible to flee God's presence because of the inescapable fact of his omnipresence a fact with which the psalmist progressively comes to terms. Maybe we're not running away from God and God is pursuing. God just is everywhere. We're not able to get away from him. It's just a fact. The psalmist comes to terms with this, and so must we. The psalmist moves to the subject of God's presence, and the interplay continues. Wherever he might go, he finds God is already there. Whether he goes to hide in the heavens or to Sheol, the highest and the deepest extremes of the cosmos, to Shemayim or to Sheol. Whether his travels span from dawn, the dawn of the east, to the far side of the sea, which is a metaphor for the west. He finds that God's hand, by some translated as left hand, will still guide him. And God's right hand will strengthen him or hold him fast. Some commentators also make a case that the left hand is symbolic for north, the right hand may be symbolic for south, and if that's true, we have another set of opposites that are literally polar opposites, so that God's presence comprehends all four cardinal points. His presence is spatially complete. The psalmist draws our attention to another contrast, that of light and darkness, a primal theme Genesis 1 relates that out of the midst of the primordial darkness, which was over the surface of the formless and empty earth, and we note that God's spirit was there, the limitless creator God spoke light into existence. And in his omnipotence, he separated the light from the darkness. He didn't need light to create. He made light. He didn't need to see in the dark. He's the one who is the maker of the light. The psalmist seems to revel in this contrast, which to God is no contrast, between light and darkness. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. That is, light and dark are no different to you. Theodoret Coming back to the church fathers has a nice comment here. Whereas for you, with the light of the intellect, even night is most bright, more light-filled than high noon. Just as night is dark to me, so it is light to you. 
The psalm also contains theological interplay. In the dynamics of the psalm, we find outward observation progressing toward inward knowledge. Within this, we find a certain zooming in, zooming out, if I can use some Microsoft terms. He zooms out to sitting and standing and zooms in to thinking. He zooms out to traveling, resting, coming and going, and then zooms into thinking of a word. He zooms out to say, God is behind me, before me, upon me. The psalmist just can't fathom then God's knowledge of him. This disparity between God's perception and our perception highlights the problem with closed-circuit TVs in London and anywhere, really. Although the cameras were able to capture the faces of the London subway bombers, that information and its import were only detected after the fact. In like manner, we in the U.S. captured video images through surveillance cameras of the 9-11 terrorists purchasing gas at gas stations, going through airport security even. And yet we were unable to stop them because of the limitations of the information that we see on the tape. Our eyes are limited. Our sight is restricted. Our knowledge is limited visually. But if we saw and we knew the way that God does, we should be able to see into a person, to behold their thoughts and intentions, perhaps to make an accurate preemptive strike every time. But we can't. Theologically, there is an interplay between God's transcendence and his imminence, God's distance and his closeness, God as uncreated and infinite, and we as finite creatures. As transcendent, his ways and abilities, his knowledge, even his foreknowledge are at a vast remove from us, his creatures. And yet, in his imminence, in his closeness, the subject of that knowledge is us. In the third strophe, God's presence, which has been described in spatial and cosmic terms, progresses now to the inner cosmos, if you will, of the human body, and specifically of the mother's womb. This portion of the psalm has accorded it high popularity as the pretty much official Sanctity of Life Sunday text par excellence. None of the rest of it is really treated, just this one part is. God's presence and his knowledge intersect with his creative activity, and the psalmist here continues the theme of darkness and light, as well as emphasizing God's imminence in his work of creation and preservation. God's direct involvement as a craftsman in creative activity is elaborated upon through the facts of human development and birth. You notice there's a screen here. We don't usually use a screen and projector in chapel. That's why the words to the songs weren't projected onto there. This is because we have a commitment to incarnation and to authenticity. We try to shun artificiality in worship. The special concession kindly granted to me by the dean serves to make the point of the psalm, however. God is all-knowing, all-seeing, everywhere present. He's not limited to a body. The psalmist portrays a God who's not limited by flesh. His vision is unrestricted by fleshly eyes. His intellectual perception is unhindered by a fleshly mind. And in fact, the psalmist freely acknowledges 
the chasm between the profundity and vastness of God's thoughts and his own anxious earthly concerns. The fact of God's ubiquity is due to lack of bodily constraints. So the only way in which limited human beings can glimpse the nature or approximate the nature of divine vision is precisely by artificial means. And the humbling factor about this is that even those means, these means, are limited because, of course, they're the product of human minds. You're on. We know that human growth and development are taking place in the womb of a woman only by our external sight, by the fact of the gradual growth of her belly. So you see like this, and that's really all you see. With the help of ultrasound technology, humans can see something like this, a view which is inaccurate and doesn't even begin to do justice to the activity unfolding in the womb. More advanced technological procedures, which are less common because they're risky, enable us to catch a glimpse of divine vision. See how there's no darkness for God? Look at the psalmist's words. In verse 13, he says that God created his inmost self, his inner parts. This is God's work in creation. He was knit together in his mother's womb. Some translate, you sheltered me from the womb, indicating God's sustenance, his preserving activity. God's knowledge of the psalmist's and of our inmost self results from his creation of that very self. The dark portions that you can't see too clearly here, I apologize for that, but they're the internal organs developing. And the dark circle that looks like it's right in the throat is the heart, which begins to beat at about 25 days after conception. It's about the size of a pinhead, and it begins pumping blood throughout the little body at a point at which the woman's pregnancy is not even yet detectable by a home pregnancy test. Thinking about God's handiwork results for the psalmist in verse 14 in a burst of praise for God's awesome and dreadful deeds which the psalmist can barely comprehend. The most popular interpretation of this verse is something like, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. But alternative translations read, I praise you for fearful things. I am wonderful, and I know very well that your works are wonderful. That is, I'm wonderful by virtue of the fact that I'm your work, and you're wonderful. By four to five weeks, the fetus already has two brain lobes that are clearly seen here. In these next verses, God's knowledge and his sight again overlap with his creative activity. My frame, or bone, my skeleton was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, when I was intricately, curiously wrought, and here we can clearly see the bones forming in the legs. And we might be reminded of Solomon's bewilderment in Ecclesiastes of the mystery of bones forming in the mother's womb. I'm embroidered, I'm woven together as a weaver weaves colored cloth. 
in the depths of the earth, in the nether realm. Your eyes saw my unformed body or my unformed substance, my embryo or my embryonic state. The psalmist combines various images relating to the womb, hiddenness, secrecy, the nether realm, the depths of the earth. They all have something in common, and that's not death. It's darkness, again. The theme comes back. Darkness, the psalmist has already established, is no deterrent to God's sight. The womb is a dark place, and darker still if your mother often dresses in black. Theodoret, again, explains, nothing can escape your notice, he is saying, since you shape the human race in nature's hidden workshop. I like that. In verse 16, the psalmist speaks of something else being shaped. Days, it says in some translations, are the days of his life shaped, or are the stages of his life, his embryo, shaped? It seems that both options are possible. The first option yields a second expression of awe and wonder at God's intellectual ability to go beyond knowledge to foreknowledge. As in verse 4, God has full comprehension of our words before they are even spoken, and so he has a purpose for humanity, even from the embryonic stage. The second option yields much the same result. God knows the stages of the embryo's life and has planned them from the beginning to their end, whatever that might be. He takes a personal interest in the development and the sustenance of his creation. The psalmist expresses himself again in doxology. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How weighty, how vast, he exclaims. Another outburst of praise as the psalmist is swept away by the insignificance of his own thoughts by comparison with God's. When I awake, I am still with you. I'm still in your presence, perhaps in the sense that he's coming out of maybe a meditational state. I'm still in your presence. Now, why can't the psalm end right there? Maybe some of you are thinking the same thing right now. I hope not. Like Psalm 23 ends, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Such a wonderful ending. And yet here we come to the potential setting and context of this psalm. It seems that perhaps there had been an accusation of some sort against the psalmist. Perhaps there were accusations of idolatry or of another sort of wickedness. Commentators divided on this issue. Some read the psalm as a prayer of vulnerability and honesty before God, while others read it as specifically a defense against charges of idolatry. In any case, the psalmist affirms his own integrity before God, that he is innocent of the charges against him. We note that the psalmist counts God's enemies as his own enemies. If only, God, you would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. He takes personally their blasphemy and their rebellion against God. 
Even in his animadversion, though, towards these enemies or these wicked people, he believes that he's not blameworthy in his hatred. Now, hate and slaying, these are strong words. On the score of slaying the wicked and hating the enemies, a number of modern commentators simply let it rest as an imprecatory section of David's psalm and kind of accept it at that. The church fathers, though, really wrestled with these issues of how at once to hate the wicked and to love your enemies. So Theodoret says that this text reads something like, Have I not hated those who hate you, Lord? And did I not waste your foes? I hated them with utter hatred. They became foes to me. His comments indicate that, as elsewhere in his commentary, when David speaks of hating his enemies... He, as a prophet of the Messiah, and looking forward to what Theodoret calls the evangelical way of life, that is, looking forward to the gospel, which urges Christians to love and to be kind to enemies and to pray for persecutors. Theodoret and his Christian congregation are bound by this law of love. And so in his commentary, he mitigates the force of what we might call the imprecatory nature of David's words. I depend on your love, O Lord, he says. I want to love and to hate the same as you. And for this reason, I love and honor those clinging to your worship, whereas those hating you, I not only hate, but I continue grieving at them and wasting away. As sinners, I hate them, but as human beings, I pity them, obliged to mourn for them out of natural fellow feeling, but in turn, detesting them, for their great wickedness. Augustine reaches much the same conclusion. Those who hate us because we serve God are primarily God's enemies. How does one hate with perfect hatred and yet still love? As Theodoret used David as an example, Augustine uses Moses. Ought we, he asks, then to love such enemies as this? Or do not they suffer persecution for God's sake, to whom it is said, pray for them that persecute you? Observe what follows. With a perfect hatred, did I hate them? What is with a perfect hatred? What does that mean? I hated in them their iniquities, but I loved your creation. How then will he fulfill in them both his own saying, Have I not hated those who hated you, Lord? And the Lord's command to love your enemies. How will he fulfill this except with that perfect hatred that he hate in them that they are wicked and love that they are humans? For in the time of the Old Testament, when carnal people were restrained by visible punishments, how did Moses, the servant of God, who by understanding belonged to the New Testament, how did he hate sinners when he prayed for them? Or how did he not hate them when he slew them? save that he hated them with a perfect hatred. For with such perfection did he hate the iniquity which he punished as to love the manhood for which he prayed. And essentially what it comes down to for the church fathers is to hate the sin, make sure that you love the sinner because he or she is still the created work of God. After this frenzy of rather violent speech, the psalmist concludes as he began with an invitation, a threefold invitation here to Yahweh. Examine me and know me. Test me 
and know, see if there is any offensive way in me, or some render it if there is any idolatry in me, if there is any wickedness in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. The psalmist welcomes God's God's scrutiny because God's knowledge of his faithfulness and his integrity can exonerate him from false accusations of any sort, if indeed this was the case. He refers in the end, probably not to eternal life and to heaven as the way everlasting, but to the wisdom motif of the two ways, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. As again, we come back to Psalm 1. What is our attitude toward God's surveillance of us? It seems often that we invest much energy in hiding our flaws, our intentions, our dark side, all the while seeming to forget that for the creator, not just of light and darkness, creator of us and of our inmost being, there is no darkness. There is no dark side. It's all open to him. His searching and knowing and examination and probing should be taken not as hostile or threatening or frightening, but rather it should be welcomed as yielding at times discipline, but always bearing fruit in a deeper and more intimate relationship with our loving covenant God, our omniscient creator. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.